Welcome to the seventh episode of The Life and Times of the Osborne Man. I am your host, Holly Hazard. If you remember, last week we discovered that John left the Osborne Art Calendar Company in 1911 and purchased a half-partnership in a coal and grain store in Cooperstown, New York. It turned out that his partner was a crook. However, during the time John owned the shop and wasn't traveling, we have no letters or other records of his life. He owned the shop for about a year. The letters begin again with one in 1912 as John is back on the road for the Osborne Company and another short one in 1913. After this, we move to the 1920s when John begins to write prolifically. If you read along each day as I open each letter and transcribe it to my blog, you know that I also include the headlines of the day from the New York Times to put each letter in context. As with most of our lives, the larger events of the day seldom intersect directly with our own. However, occasionally, we might comment or send a text about a disaster or a political foible. As you will soon hear, John is just the same. Our narrator, Mike Sternad, will first read an article from page one of the New York Times and then John's letter. Note that John references Theodore Roosevelt as Theodore in his letter to Sue. From the front page of the New York Times, Chicago, October 15th, 1912. High pulse said to be due to his fretting at inactivity, wakeful till midnight. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt was wakeful and restless at midnight in his room at Mercy Hospital, to which he was brought this morning, suffering from the bullet wound in his right breast, inflicted on him by John Schrank in Milwaukee the night before. And now... John's Letters Hotel Langwell, Elmira, New York, October 16th, 1912, 9 p.m. My darling, your letter just received and was glad to get. I like to write to you, and I don't have to wonder and ask myself every time what it is for, even though there's no news to give. It's to assure and reassure you that I love you, and that's all about it. This has been another perfect day, just like that Sunday two weeks ago. I have done no business again today, but I am not discouraged. I'll win out someday. Am glad the baseball series is over, and now men can turn their minds to something else. New York made a great fight for the laurels, and only for one costly error today they would have had a victory. But mistakes, both in baseball and life struggles in general, have to be reckoned with. If we make no mistakes, life would be monotonous, I suppose. Yet, they are to be guarded against and avoided whenever possible, and at best our careers will be too much marred by error. I am very sorry for Theodore, and am rejoiced that his injury is no worse, but he can't have my vote. I note what you say about the spindles, and we'll see about it. As far as I'm concerned, I don't care if they are square, round, or egg-shaped, or whether there are any spindles. I may get home Friday night. Might as well save my expense money. We'll think of you many times tomorrow and we can call Saturday our anniversary. 
We'll be with you that day for sure. We'll spend tomorrow here. No news except much love for my sweetheart of 16 good years. And now, the last letter of the 1910s. Herkimer, New York, August 7th, 1913. My dear Sue, your loving message just received, and I hasten to make answer. The news of Tabby's demise has cast a gloom over our otherwise delightful vacation. I had hoped that he would soon recover and again resume his faithful service as the greatest mouser that ever lived. He had always been a good cat, with the best of manners and kindest disposition. He had lived beyond the years allotted to the cat family, and yet, to the last, was active and industrious. His friends and admirers were legion. Tabby Tabby, with the slit in his ear, had lived and toiled for many a year. And now that poor Tabby has gone on, has brought sadness to dear Marion. I've included this last letter for the podcast, not only because it's the last one for about seven years, but it also shows a, a playful side of John that doesn't usually come out in his letters. I have a photo of Marion holding her cat, Tabby. We all know the crushing blow that losing a beloved pet can have on a child. John shows a tender side by writing a poem in his honor, presumably for Marion's mother, Sue, to read to her. John referenced Theodore Roosevelt in his first letter, noting his sympathy for the man who'd been shot at an event the night before. According to the New York Times, Roosevelt was leaving his car for a speaking engagement in Milwaukee when a man pulled a gun and shot him. The crowd shouted, lynch him, kill him, but Roosevelt held up his hand and declared, stand back, don't hurt him. He didn't think he'd been shot, but his secretary noticed blood seeping from his jacket. He refused to go to the hospital immediately and instead spoke for about an hour. He was hit in the right breast, and the Times says that his pocket saved him. John makes it clear in his letter to Sue that his sympathy will not translate into a vote. From reading ahead a bit, I know that when Roosevelt was president, John was appalled at his ideas. In his letter, John also referenced the 1920 World Series. He writes, New York made a great fight for the laurels, and only for one costly error today would they have had victory. But mistakes both in baseball and life's struggles in general have to be reckoned with. The Boston Red Sox beat the New York Giants in the 10th inning to become the 1912 World Series champions. With these letters, we leave this decade and move with the family into the Roaring Twenties. John will now be writing to Sue and his grown children, sometimes three to four times a week, and sometimes two letters a day. Also, now that his children are grown, we will begin to hear their voices and to develop their unique characters. Next week, Marion will be introduced for the first time. I knew her well as she was my grandmother. Of course, I didn't know her in her 20s, just out of college and starting a career. Please join us next Monday for Marion's story. If you're enjoying this podcast, could you please help us by rating the podcast and leaving a review on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts? This week, the voice of John was narrated by Mike Sternad. This podcast is produced by Holly Hazard. Music is provided by Escalante Music from Pond 5. Thank you so much for listening.